Hello and welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. And this week I am turning over the interviewer's chair to my colleague Anne Danahy, who is a reporter for WPSU, the NPR affiliate here in central Pennsylvania, and one of the hosts of the station's interview show, Take Notes. On this episode of Take Notes, Anne interviews Democracy Works hosts Michael Berkman and Candace Watts-Smith about all things 2020 election. They talk about polls. They talk about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Supreme Court vacancy. They talk about Black Lives Matter and ongoing protests. They even talk about yard signs. So lots to unpack in this episode. We really enjoy collaborating with WPSU on Democracy Works and on programs like Take Notes and are excited to be able to bring you this conversation. So here now is Anne Danahy with Michael Berkman and Candace Watts-Smith. Welcome to Take Note on WPSU. I'm Ann Danahy. The presidential election is about a month away. Mail-in ballots, whether people will trust the election results, and the role of local politics are a few of the issues in the news. Joining us to break all of that down are Michael Berkman and Candace Watts-Smith from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State. Michael Bergman is director of the Institute and a professor of political science. Smith is an associate professor of political science and African-American studies and part of the McCourtney Institute. Bergman and Smith are two of the hosts of the Institute's podcast, Democracy Works. Michael Bergman and Candace Watts-Smith, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's Thanks great for to having be here. us, Anna. Let's start by talking about polling. Michael, do national polls matter? Joe Biden is ahead by about five points, more or less, in national polls. But it really comes down to a state-by-state race, right? So do those national polls matter? Uh, and well, you're certainly correct. It's going to come down to a state-by-state race. And if, it's, uh, if the polling is close nationally, then those state polls become ever more important. Uh, national polls are often of very high quality. It's tougher to get high-quality state polls, uh, but it would be nice to have more. Candace, when you look at those national polls, what's your takeaway from them? Do, do they serve a purpose? Sure. I mean, the thing is, is that we we also calculate the national popular vote. And so I think some of these tell us, you know, we can try to figure out, are they helping us predict something or are they telling us something about what the public thinks about mm-hmm. politics and thinks about the candidate? So Sure, the you know it would be really great to have excellent state by state um, polls to use as predictions, but national polls can tell us about the extent to which a president has a mandate. It can tell us the extent to which um, we have contestation in the public around various issues and candidates, and it can tell us um, maybe potentially signal to candidates the extent to which they need to compromise that they might need to move to the center or move away from factionalism. Mm -hmm. So national polls can can give us a lot of information about maybe what the public sentiment is, um, maybe not necessarily election predictions. Oh, that's interesting. So kind of the national mood. And Mm -hmm. what are when you look at the national polls and and getting a sense of the national mood right now, what are you seeing, Michael? Because the, the numbers have been fairly steady, right, at the national level? Uh, the stability is downright remarkable. 
And uh, it, it seems like no matter what happens, whether it's something that should reflect favorably on the president or something that should reflect negatively on the president, his approval doesn't really seem to change very much. And his standing in the uh, in the uh, horse race polls doesn't seem to uh, to change very much. So w- what I see in the polls more than anything is a sense of stability about the race and a sense that a lot of people have made up their minds. How much should we trust those polls? So when we're looking at Pennsylvania, for example, Biden is up by about five points in most of the polling, although there was just a recent one. I think he was up about nine, nine points. But then we know from the last election that even when one candidate appears to be ahead, there's all the variables, margin of error and things like that that go into the polls. So how how much faith should we have in those state polls? And I'll put that to Michael. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, I think, I think you know, some polls are better than others, Anne. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are some that have developed a reputation over the years of, mm-hmm. of being pretty accurate. And uh, I think we should pay more attention to those than to uh, polls from outfits with uh, with less positive track records or with very small samples, which you'll often see in state polls. Mm-hmm. So you need to you need to look carefully at the poll. You need to look carefully at the pollster. And uh, some can tell us quite a bit. And Candace, what are your thoughts on that? Just looking, getting, diving into the details of how the polling is done. Well, I I would uh, echo what Michael said here, but also I think that there are some things that it's it's expensive to do yeah. really good polls, <laughs> and it's expensive to get, for example, multi language polls. So um, you know, sometimes we see that people who's uh, lang- you know, first language is not English, are often cut out from those polls. We can think about, well, are they internet-based? So are we going to miss out on older voter- voters versus younger voters? Um, so there are all of these um, things that are up in the air and that it is really difficult to get good samples, especially at local and state level. But you know, as Michael was saying, that there are some really smart people out there who do really excellent work and do try to account for these details. So I think that reputation matters matters a lot and that we have to pay attention to which polls um, we're, we're focusing on and which ones we're, um, you know, would use for, for betting purposes to, mm-hmm. yeah. And can yeah. I build on that for one second? Sure. And I want to just put another thought out there too, Michael, maybe you can address this as well. The last presidential election, there was the question about some voters who, when the pollster would ask them who they're voting for, they would say one thing, but then they would go and do something else. Yeah. So so thanks for, for that question too. So just building on what Candace was saying, it's a good idea to look at, at, at averages of polls. And so when you're looking mm-hmm. at multiple polls together, I think you get a better idea of where we stand than focusing too much on any one poll or, uh, you know, picking a poll that that somehow shows what, what, what it is you really wanted to see in the first place. Uh, as to the quality, I'm sorry, what was the second question again? Sure, I'll just ask it separately. So, Michael, one of the issues that came up with the last presidential election uh, was whether yeah. people were being honest with yeah. pollsters or they're saying, I'm going to vote for this person and then vote for somebody else. I, I actually think there's not a whole lot of evidence 
for that. And, you know, one, one way of looking at this question, it often comes up in terms of what's referred to as like hidden Trump voters or Trump voters who don't want to acknowledge that they're going to vote for Trump. But they do, you know, the Internet polls show pretty much the same thing as we find in the on person to person polls. And there's no reason that somebody wouldn't be honest on an Internet poll. Uh, since you're not actually talking to somebody. So I, I'm skeptical that there's really been a lot of that. I don't know, maybe Candace has uh, a different sense of that. No. Yeah. If if you drive around Pennsylvania, you'll see a lot of political signage right mm-hmm. now. And I can't say who is winning the sign wars this time around, but it, it appears that Democrats are making more of an effort this time than four years ago. And seeing all these signs on both sides, I wonder, does does it matter? What's the purpose of all of this political signage? What role does it serve, Candace? It's funny that you asked that, Anne. I was just having this conversation <laughs> with uh, my husband about what, what the purpose is. And I think on some level, we are at a moment where the election is speaking to people's values. And increasingly, we see that people's partisanship is becoming central to their identity. Um, And so in some ways, it could be that people are saying, I want you to know what it is that I think about what's going on in this world, what direction that we need to move, and also to tell you about myself, my values, who I support, right? In addition to the kind of Biden or Trump signs, we also see signs about Black Lives Matter, Police Lives Matter, um, you know, here are our values, we welcome everybody. So I think that in addition to the kind of red, blue, uh, you know, who am I going to vote for, people are also displaying something about themselves um, in these signs. Right. That's really interesting. I mean, do we... No, Michael, it's a way of showing what you're thinking and who you're supporting. But do people also think they're trying to sway other people's opinions? I can see that maybe more in, a, in local elections when people might not be as familiar with the candidates. Yes. Well, I think that's an excellent point, Anne. And, and certainly things like door knocking or you know, door-to-door contact is said to be better and local, more effective in local races than in national races. You know, it, it probably provides for some people a sort of permission structure to uh, support a particular candidate to, for them to see visually that other people are supporting that candidate as well. Maybe people in their own neighborhood uh, it could give them some some support. Mostly, I think people are just wanting to express themselves, I, much the way that Candace was describing. Yeah. A big issue right now is absentee voting, mail-in voting, especially because of the COVID-19 pandemic. More people are taking a look at at if they can mail in their ballots or Mm -hmm. do it in another way without waiting in line. And we got this comment from a listener, and it's from Tom. And Tom says he's scared that if President Trump loses the election, he won't accept the results. And he'll start tweeting that the election was fraudulent and, quote, call on his band of radicals to grab their guns and head to Washington. There's a lot of discussion around this. Do we know how things would actually play out if a president didn't accept the results? We don't. (laughs) Thank you. Yes, we don't really know how this would play out. We're in some uncharted territory here. Although, you know, from back in 2000 with the fight in Florida, we saw quite how messy and long it can take in any one state. 
uh, if there's a, a question about the final outcome and if it's close. And I think the closeness of the election uh, will dictate a lot about what happens after the election. And Candace, do you see that it taking away people's trust in the election at all? Well, I think that that's already going on and happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so much of our ideas about trust and legitimacy are psychological. And what we see is what we see is Donald Trump putting out seeds of doubt um, and other, you know, folks uh, putting out seeds of doubt that will grow. And so I, I, I actually find these kinds of things quite dangerous to talk about mail-in ballots as fraudulent or um, that there's going to be a lot of people who are voting that aren't supposed to vote. There's no data for that. But when you put that out in the ether as a possibility, what that means is that the truth and evidence-based facts also just become part of the cacophony of possibilities. Um, so, you know, I, I find this kind of rhetoric very dangerous um, for the extent to which people believe in institutions. So much of how democracy works is mostly just the idea that we believe that it works the way it's supposed to. Right. So the idea kind of the more we as a country talk about whether the results will be accepted and whether the absentee voting will be is valid and is acceptable, the kind of the more credence it gives to those ideas, whether there's any actual facts behind them. It just starts. Let's keep talking about it. And then people it just becomes part of the national conversation. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Another related to that, um, put this one to you, Michael, is whether states will will have their all their results on election night and the idea that somehow that's how it's supposed to be that for it to count when some states might have an election night, but some might not have it until later. Is that another element um, that's going to lend to mistrust? Yes, I think that's a critical element, Anne. And I think it's incumbent on the media to prepare the public for the fact that we may well not have an election night outcome. Uh, it, it In some states with mail-in ballots, states <clears throat> especially that, that aren't very experienced with high volume of mail-in ballots, it can take a while. It can take days. Actually, we know from experience that it takes California weeks. Now, California is not going to be in question, uh, but Pennsylvania certainly is critical. And Pennsylvania will probably take several days, if not longer. Uh, Michigan is probably going to take several days, if not longer. So while some states like Florida will clearly know that night, because Florida starts counting its mail-in ballots Mm -hmm. before Election Day, Mm -hmm. other states will not. And, you know, one concern that I have, uh, building on what Candace was saying before, is uh, is that Donald Trump in particular will declare himself the winner on election night, uh, based only on votes that have been counted that day. Uh, but there is voting that will still have to take place over over several days. And, and it's important that the public understand this. So that even if the results come in and it changes the outcome, that, that you, it's too soon to declare on that. I want to go, Candace, yeah. to, back to one of the things you were saying, that um, that there isn't any scientific basis for this these ideas that are being thrown out there, what do you think is the best approach to handling them? Is it something that the media should just like stop talking about so much? Or is it something that state and local leaders have to confront head on? 
Sure. I think that it's something that we need to, here's the thing. I think that sometimes in this effort to be fair and balanced, we give credence to ideas that just don't have any weight. And I think that we need to get comfortable with the idea that not every idea gets a say. Um, And so I I think that it is incumbent upon leaders, it is incumbent upon the media to educate the public about how things work. The fact of the matter is, is that Donald Trump or Joe Biden can declare themselves the winner. And that's not how it works. Just like how, um, you know, and and I'm going to, I hope this doesn't sound crass, but the idea that you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg says that is her dying wish that her her seat doesn't get filled by the current president or before the election. That's not how things work. And so I think it's really important for the American public to be educated about how things work. And the fact of the matter is, is that we have learned a lot about how politics works in this country. We learned about emoluments. We learned about (laughs) impeachment. We learned about how many judges have to be on the SCOTUS. We've learned so many things and we're capable of learning new information and the right thing. But we have to get these messages very clearly shared with us and consistently. Well, this election in some ways seems to be running totally counter to the old political adage from uh, former U.S. House Speaker Tip O'Neill that all politics is local. Michael, is this something that's happening now or has this been going on for years? Uh, It's been going on for years. I think elections have become more nationalized. There's been less ticket splitting. There's a variety of evidence that uh, politics have become more of a national than a local affair. But, you know, local issues matter and they're going to matter in this election. Uh, You know, I've been intrigued since the Democratic primaries about the extent to which uh, some of the Democratic Party's opposition to fracking was going to matter in Pennsylvania. And things like that are going to matter in different states. There are still local issues that are important. So right now we're in a presidential election. So there's a lot of interest. There's likely to be a lot of high voter turnout. But in those off-year elections, we see voter turnout that can be 25 to 30 percent sometimes, very low turnout. But those offices have a major impact on people's lives, local and state offices. Candace, why do you think turnout is so low for those local and state offices? That I mean, this has historically been true, that People have just been attracted to this business of the president. Um, But our policy, our day-to-day life is influenced by local policy and local outcomes and state policy and outcomes. Um, So I I don't know. I think, you know, part of it has to do with the amount of money that's spent in a a general, like a a presidential election year versus uh, off year. Uh, I think it has to do with civic education Mm -hmm. about the extent to which people are aware of the importance of local elections. And I'm not, and not to say that the public is not smart, I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that I don't know if we have gotten the education to really understand the necessity and importance of um, of the of the off year elections and even kind of special elections, right? Um, so I, I I mean I think that yeah I, I I'll stop there and say I think that it's just a matter of 
how much attention is given by the media, how much money is spent by candidates, and how much we've been socialized to care about those those off year elections. Yeah. And and also, Lan, how much people know about these local elections. And so it can be harder to gain information, to gather information about how candidates might differ, about who the candidates actually are. Uh, and, and so that, that can put off some people from voting if they don't feel comfortable, that they really know what's happening. If they really know the candidates, they'll often just opt out. You just decide not to vote for that. Yeah. Pennsylvania got rid of straight party voting in the election. So in other words, you can't walk into the polling place and just say, okay, I'm voting all Democrat, all Republican. I have to go in and choose who I'm voting for in each of the races that's on the ballot. Michael, is that something that matters? How significant do you think that is? You know, I don't think we really know. Uh, studies may have been done on this. I'm not I'm not aware of them. I mean, when I think about the straight ticket voting, it always struck me as something kind of left over from almost the machine politics days mm-hmm. <laughs> of uh politics in many uh, northeastern states, including including Pennsylvania, where in effect, somebody would actually come to the uh, ballot box, would come to the voting booth and just be handed a ballot from one party or the other. And that's how they voted. And, you know, there was something to be said for that, actually, when you go back to your last question about local elections, it meant you really didn't need to know much about everybody on the ballot. Mm-hmm. You just knew that you were a Democrat or you were a Republican, and that's how you voted straight down the ticket. People are uncomfortable with that these days. It seems like something from another time. I don't know how many states other than Pennsylvania were actually still doing it. Right. Interesting. And another change that could be coming in Pennsylvania is how upper court judges are elected. And right now it's a statewide election. And there's there's been a push by mostly Republicans in the General Assembly to change that to regional judges in elections instead of having it statewide. And that would be a major change. And that's also something that doesn't get a lot of attention. Why do you think that is that people don't pay attention to those court elections? Again, is Candace, is that another case of where we don't have a lot of information about it? I think this goes in this in the similar category of the things that we have come to believe are really important. I Again, right? So even this moment uh, with the Supreme Court nominee uh, and all of the controversy around uh, confirmation and nomination processes, that people are becoming more aware of the importance of courts. I know, for example, that um, increasingly judge like uh, j- judgeships or uh, elections around judges are essentially I, I guess you can say some of the cheapest seats to buy I, I hate to say it that way but we know that a lot of uh, the way that people can fundraise and um, get out the vote can really influence a seat and so judicial seats have been one of the I'm using my air quote fingers <laughs> um, to get to buy. And so um, and and now we're seeing I think people are becoming more aware of how critical courts are in um, sh- not shaping laws, but uh, interpreting them and determining whether they're constitutional or unconstitutional. So I think that we should be paying more attention if people are are if there is a contestation around a particular seat, kind of seat, then that means that there's something up for grabs, that there are high stakes. 
And so perhaps even this the, the this e effort to change how these seats are elected, is it statewide, is it regional, is it how it's telling us that these that these seats are important mm -hmm. for policy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Michael, the courts are getting an incredible amount of attention, as Candace was saying, more attention maybe now than in the past, just looking at voting in Pennsylvania and mail-in ballots and whether they should be counted if they come in after a few days after the election or not. Those are all things that are tied up in the courts right, right now. Yeah, there are going to be a whole range of election questions for this in 2020 that are going to come down to the courts. Uh, both Both parties have been, both campaigns, I should say, have staffed up uh, with quite a few attorneys. Uh, they are anticipating legal battles in many states. Uh, this, the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court could become very important. Remember the role that the Florida State Supreme Court played mm -hmm. in 2000. I don't, I don't expect they actually remember that, but it, but it was. It was all part of that. Uh, you know, and, and Democrats, go back to your original question, Democrats have been winning statewide elections, you know, with the exception of the presidential election and some Senate elections, but they've been mm -hmm. doing pretty well on state seats and on state offices. And so they took the state Supreme Court in a recent election. And so usually when one side suggests changing the rules about how how, how an election is to be held, it, it's because they think it's going to benefit them. Yeah, another kind of a state and national issue, the Electoral College. One of the big big complaints about the Electoral College is when it comes down to the election, we're looking at maybe 40,000 voters in Michigan or Pennsylvania. Do you think that if we continue to see that happening where one candidate wins the national election, but another candidate wins the Electoral College, could that erode trust in our voting system, Michael? Yes, I, I think it's I think it's uh, it's very problematic, and we're seeing it increasingly. And it's because we now have a party party alignment that really uh, kind of reflects the biases in some of our institutions. So, as one party has become really much stronger in rural areas, and another party has become much stronger in urban areas, that sort of maps onto the electoral college and onto the Senate. And so, these issues I think become much more important. You know, remember, I, there was a time when Democrats won rural states and there was a time when Republicans won urban northeastern states. And, and so it didn't it didn't matter so much. The Electoral College didn't seem to favor one party over the other. But we're in a kind of different era now. I mean, I think what the Electoral College and people's attention to it is that just because something is constitutional doesn't make it democratic. And I think that that's what people are noticing is that there are things that are in our constitution that are perfectly legal, but when we look at the face of it, the outcome, especially if we do the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law, can be very undemocratic. Absolutely. Yes. In fact, designed to be undemocratic, designed yeah. to control majority impulses. I mean, they were quite clear about that, framers. Right. And we've seen five presidential elections in U.S. history where the winner of the Electoral College vote was not the winner of the popular vote. And of course, two of those happen in recent times. So does it feel like that that is a trend that things are going to continue going in that direction, Michael? Well, under the current party alignment, yes. Now, party mm -hmm. alignments don't last forever, but they do last for a long time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and these two parties are becoming more polarized from one another along these sort of lines. So, yeah, I think this is a real issue. 
uh, again, if the election is close, then this is really going to matter. But the, if, the, if the election is not close, uh, then people have much less of a difficult time, I think, accepting the outcome of the Electoral College. And another big issue that's in the news, obviously, is the Supreme Court. Donald Trump recently nominated Amy Comey Barrett to fill the Supreme Court position that Ruth Bader Ginsburg held. And there's very divided opinion about whether that should be left open until at least after the presidential election. Do you see this discussion, this whole conversation actually influencing the election, Candace? Sure. I think that people are... I think that people are noticing how important (laughs) so many things that we just kind of, you know, like when things are working well and there's not any controversy or scandal, we're like, la, la, la. But (laughs) when, when there's controversy and debate, then we start paying attention. You know, I think, you know, I, I saw somewhere, some Pew research that in 2000, when you ask, does it really matter who wins? Uh, is it, you know, is there, is will it make a really big difference? Or are the the two candidates pretty much the same? In two thousand, maybe fifty percent of people said it really mattered, and forty five percent of people said it's pretty much the same. Now, eighty five percent of people say the election really matters. That who wins is really going to matter for outcomes in the future. More people are saying that they're thinking a lot about the election in ways that they haven't. And a lot of people are saying that they are going to turn out. So I do think that um, these issues are showing to more of the public how important um, voting is going to be and how different our lives could be if one candidate and one set of one party wins over another. Mm-hmm. Right. And a similar question. There's obviously a lot of conversations about race and racism going on right now. We have protests after the death of George Floyd. Do you see that, Michael, having any effect on the election or pe- do people dig into their positions? Uh, I dig into their positions on what? I, let me put it in a different way. Do voters... Yeah they have their position and it's already in line with who they're voting for. So they're not going to, it's not going to sway them one way or another. Uh, protests and, and the like are not going to, well, you know, I think, I think that the uh, Black Lives Matters protests have injected a great deal of intensity and energy onto the, onto one side, certainly. And I think it's also offered the president an opportunity uh, to highlight isolated violent episodes to talk about his to talk about racial issues in coded and uncoded ways that he thinks will uh, help him to turn out his base. So, yes, I think it's going to make a difference in this election. I think it's hard to say exactly what the circumstances are going to be on the ground when we get to the election itself. Uh, But I I certainly think it's injected uh, quite a bit into the election so far. I, just to add, I actually, yeah. I think that one of the things that has come out, I, I read on um, Ballotpedia, I was just kind of looking at the different mm-hmm. um, referenda and initiatives across the country, and there are 18 local police measure ballots that have qualified since oh, George Floyd's death. So the protests you know, on the one hand, we're kind of thinking about turnout and interest, but it's also changed the ballots that there are, for example, in Philadelphia, 
um, on, uh, you know, on, on those ballots, there's a question about stop and frisk. There's a question about victim advocate. There's a question about a citizen police oversight commission. Um, and then also in Allegheny County in Pittsburgh, um, about an indis- independent citizen review board. Um, and so, you know, the protests have also changed what people uh, are prioritizing and are are requiring of their policymakers to think about on questions of policing in particular. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that kind of highlights, again, the importance of local and state politics. Well, the national gets a lot of attention. That's how I frame the question as a national issue, but it's what's happening at that local and state level that becomes really important. So the pandemic, those protests, the Supreme Court vacancy, all of that is what dominates the news and the election discussion. <laughs> Michael, we'll start with you. Do you see future elections returning to the the so-called normal issues that we're used to talking about, or at least get some attention, the economy, jobs, the environment, education? Well, I think the economy is going to be in this in any election. And, you know, anytime you have an incumbent, there's going to be to some extent a referendum on the president going on. But, you know, these have been four, I guess, three, four remarkable years (laughs) in terms of the intense focus on the president to the extent to which the president has been constantly sort of in our minds and from one scandal and one controversy to the next and one sort of chaotic episode to the next. Hard for me to imagine that anybody else could quite take us back to this level, but you know, it's it, a lot's going to depend on the outcome of this election as mm-hmm. to what future elections are going to are going to look like. Right, Candace, what... because, yeah, go ahead. I'm, no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say I'm hedging because anticipating the the future <laughs> these days feels really risky. <laughs> right, that's why I'm asking you two to do it, and I'm not <laughs> predicting it. Candace, what are your thoughts on that? Do you see future elections and discussions returning at all to the the so-called normal issues? I don't know. And one of the reasons why I don't know is because it will depend on whether we are willing to accept the norms that we are used to now or if we're going to do something radically different. So, for example, in this conversation about Um, the confirmation of the new Supreme Court justice is, okay, well, if you get this justice, then next time we're going to expand the court or we're going to get rid of the filibuster or we're going to add states. So, I mean, I I can see us spiraling into a series of really important debates around electoral college, around filibuster, around states, around how many justices? I mean, I you know, and then there's the actual issues that the Supreme Court are going to see about gun regulation, abortion, policing. I mean, so I, I can see us also shifting into a space where everything becomes uh, flashpoints that we're all just kind of focused on. And I could, I could see it being very, I don't want to use the word chaotic, but um, I can see us I don't know what the word intense. Is. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, I can see also it because... being incredibly intense henceforth. Yeah, excuse me. I, I was just going to say also because what what Candace is describing there is also an artifact of having such highly polarized parties, uh, yeah. the parties that are organized along the kind of identity lines that Candace was talking about earlier, and that that does lead to very intense conflictual politics. Uh, so anticipating what future politics between parties like this will look 
look like also requires us to have some understanding of what the party system is mm -hmm. going to look like. And what will the Republican Party look like, for example, if Donald Trump loses by a lot? And what will the Republican Party look like if Donald Trump wins mm -hmm. and gets another four years? And I think that is going to uh, have a lot to do. I think we have a clear sense of where the Democratic Party is doing, is going just by looking at demographics. Mm -hmm. We'll have to stay tuned. Well, Michael Berkman and Candace Watts-Smith, thank you both for coming in to talk with us virtually. It's a pleasure. Uh, Thanks, Dan. Yeah, thank you, Anne. It was a pleasure. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.